I'd like to begin just by saying good morning again and welcome to those of you who are joining us by video right now. I'm really glad that you're here also. I'm, I'm grateful that all of you who are here right now have made it a priority to be right here right now as we learn and grow together as a Christian community. Hey, we always read the Bible together when we uh, are together for worship. I want to invite the ushers to come up the aisles right now to distribute Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you or you didn't pick one up on the way in, uh, you can just borrow one from our ushers in both venues and just put it on the shelf in the back of the room again after worship today. As a church community, we have been journeying together. We've kind of in this last season, we've been reading and learning from one of the biographies of Jesus called The Gospel According to Luke. And we're reading the life story and, and the individual stories of Jesus' life so that we can know what his life was like. And as we are apprentices, disciples, followers of Jesus, that we would know more about the life that Jesus leads us to live. And in the course of the series, last week, we, be, we pressed pause on a topic to say, this one's going to take a little longer. Let's just spend a couple weeks learning about this together. Let's ask more about this and learn how it applies to our lives. We're going to do that a few times over the course of this journey through the, the biography or gospel of Jesus according to Luke. Right now, we're doing that on a topic that we might call the spiritual life, or nowadays we might call it spirituality. What Luke said about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit and preached about the Spirit. And we're asking ourselves, what's that? Who is that? What is that? What does it do for our lives? What does it mean for us right now? And over the course of these four weeks, what I'm trying to do is connect the best of classical Christian teaching and biblical teaching about the spiritual life, about the Spirit of God, with the questions and experiences that you have and I have that we have in our lives today. We began last week, and I've been really encouraged to hear from some of you about the conversations you were having this week. I heard from some of your growth groups this last week, how you were wrestling with, thinking about praying with the first steps that we took together. You were praying about what, what is that old us thing that the Spirit is leaving behind as, as the Spirit of God raises up a new us with Jesus to live life in Christ. What's, that, what's something about the old us or the old me that's being left behind? And what's, what's the new us, the new me that the Spirit is raising up? I've heard some of those conversations and I'm encouraged to hear about how we're growing as a community already. Today, I want to help with another step, and that is a talk about two problems that I think most of us, nearly all of us, would encounter as we endeavor to live a spiritual life. The first one is this, and that is the experience of what I might call dry spirituality, or I'm trying to live the spiritual life, but I don't feel any spirituality at all. I don't feel any presence of God. What I feel is like I'm living in the absence of God, like I'm living in the absence of God. Before we talk about that specifically, let me give you an image to think about that with. Have any of you anywhere in your life story, have you ever had a time where there was somebody that you were close to, somebody that you loved and they loved you, and they moved or you moved from a situation where you were present to each other like regularly, maybe every day, and now you didn't see each other anymore for long stretches of time. They went from present to physically absent in your life, right? Like the first thing that comes to mind for me is when a, a child in a family goes away to college. And I remember actually that experience for myself when I left my family and went and moved away to college. And I, I realized that it is getting frighteningly close for my own children <laughs> to be getting there not too far away from now. Or maybe you've had a close friend that you saw on a regular basis and then one of you, maybe for a job or who knows what reason, just had to relocate, move away. 
and you didn't see them like you did before, or someone you know and love deployed in the military, or maybe you've lived in a long-distance romantic relationship, or I know people who struggle to make long-distance marriages work. If you've ever done something like that, you'll know that even though that person and you are the same person, you're the same people, same character, same identity, all that stuff, and, and your relationship maybe has a lot of similarities. You still love and care about them. They still love and care about you. But all you have now are ideas about that person. You have memories of that person. It's not the same as actually seeing them and being present in their life, right? Even though they're the same, it's not the same when they're absent and present, right? I think some of us have that same experience in our relationship with God. We feel like we're living in the practical absence of God. And maybe we have ideas about God, and, and we don't think that God's character identity maybe has really changed, and we don't know if we've changed or not. And, but all we're living off of, maybe we have memories, maybe memories of a time that we felt close to God, and now we're kind of living off the fumes of those memories. In my experience, I've seen people, and I think I myself have seen, that we can experience this in a couple different ways. On the one hand, sometimes we feel as if we're living in the absence of God, but if we're being honest about it, doesn't actually bother us that much, right? Because the lives that we live on a day-to-day basis, we're not thinking about that. The choices that we make, the priorities that we set, the relationships that we form, the goals that we pursue, the life that we live is honestly a life we could live without God anyway. Now, if we're Christians, that's probably convicting already at some level, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it even matters to us whether God is present or not. But then there's another way of living in what feels like the absence of God, And that is to find out that it really bothers us, that it really does matter, that this life that you feel called to live, a life in the way of Jesus, a life in the grace of Jesus, a life with forgiveness for those who wrong you, a life of love overcoming hate, a life of reconciling that which is broken, you realize that you're no match to do that on your own in the face of the evil that's all around us. And you realize, I actually need God to live this life. Or maybe you experience it in times of like suffering, pain, challenge, trial, loss, And in the midst of those, some people will feel like, where's God in all this? I feel absent from God. And in those cases, it feels like it really matters. The first thing I want to talk to you about today is that feeling of dry spirituality, or like we live in the absence of God. And the first thing that I want to show you today or talk to you about is that when the biblical vision for the spiritual life tells us that we are right to hope for more than that that we were right for, to hope for more than that, that we were made to live in the presence of God. And I want to show you this two ways. The first one really is, is, is about the, the Bible story. The whole Bible is a story. If you may not be very familiar with the Bible, it's made up of 66 individual documents or 66 individual books that all lock together in telling one overarching story of the relationship between God and his world centering in Jesus. And way at the beginning of the story, this story is framed as a story that's meant to be lived between human beings in the presence of God. Way at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the Bible, is a book called Genesis. The name Genesis even means beginning or origins. And at the beginning of the book of beginnings, at the beginning, there are these stories of creation. And in one of those stories, there's a story about two characters, Adam and Eve. And they are described in that story as walking in the garden with the Lord in the cool of the day. As if there are these two people and and a third character, and the third character is God, and they're walking in this garden called Eden. They're walking on this trail together in the cool of the day, like you might go for a hike together with two other friends, with three people. 
The story invites us, it gives us the imagination that the world as God created it, the human life and human community as God created it, was meant to be lived in the presence of God, in a relationship with God. And then we're going to leap over to the end of the story for a second because I just want to show you how it's framed. All the way at the end of the Bible story is a book called Revelation. It's about a, a revelation that was given by God's Spirit to somebody whose name was John. And we read that book together at the end of last spring as spring turned into summer. And I want to read you one passage from the book of Revelation that describes how, uh, how God's vision is for us to live in his presence again. This is Revelation chapter 21. It's verses 3 and 4. It's on page 1840 of our Quest Bibles. And I just want to acknowledge that the, kind of the nature of today's topic means I'm going to jump around a fair bit in the Bible. Uh, so if you have troubles flipping the pages, we put it on the screens for you to be able to follow along today. But if you are able to find it, I always love it when people can read, uh, that we can all read it for ourselves too. So Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. This is what John said who received this revelation from God. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne, like from the heavenly throne room, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what will the presence of God do among us? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Right, so the whole framing of the biblical story is, is a story that of our living in the presence of God, how God made us to live in his presence and live in relationship with him, and how that's what God plans to restore. But what about all this time in the middle? What about all this meantime, all these thousands of years where we and all of our ancestors have lived? Well, I want to show you an image that the Bible uses for that, and it's, it's the image of temple. And to start that, let me invite you to turn all the way back into the Old Testament with me to a book called 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. If you want to find it in your Quest Bibles, it's on page 478. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. Now, the context here is, at, is that this is the story of the work of King Solomon, who was one of the great kings of ancient Israel, lived about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000, about maybe a little bit less than that, B.C. And so one of Solomon's jobs was to build this grand temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And this story kind of comes at the end of that big building project. And here's what the Bible says about that moment. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. This is a, a, a box, is what you can picture, a box. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place right in the center, and they put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Cherubim is a, is a word for angels, and so there's this image of angels that are there. And the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark. They overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles, like people would carry this ark on long poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place, not the most holy place, you could see it from the holy place, in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. It's so specific, not when you get farther away. And they are still there today, which means at the time of the writing of this book, 1 Kings, they're still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place where they brought the ark, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. And then he prayed, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And in the imagination and the experience 
of, those, of that ancient people of God, of those ancient Israelites. They experienced the presence of God as located centrally in the temple. Some of you may hear that story, and, and you may wonder, how realistic is that? How is it possible that, that the God who made the universe, that the God who made all of heaven and earth, the breadth of the galaxies and the universe that we can't even measure, how is it you're going to contain that God in one spot, in one building, in one city? How, how does that become where God is present? Well, if you're asking that, you're not alone. So were God's people, even in Old Testament times. And there's a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And if you want to read this one with me, it's Isaiah chapter 66. In your Quest Bibles, that's going to be on page 1092. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. As we read the story of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke, we've already seen how Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah more than from anywhere else in the Bible. And this is what God said to the prophet Isaiah in the last chapter, in Isaiah chapter 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Right, so it's, it's not about this one location. It's not as if God could be contained there. But it's God's intention to be present to his people throughout creation. And what, I, I give you this image of temple because I want to show you this particular teaching that comes in the New Testament. And I want to read this passage to you. It's from Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 19 through 22. It's on page 1714 of your Quest Bibles. This is a letter we're going to read from a guy named Paul who was from Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, one of the great early Christian teachers and followers of Jesus and spreaders of Jesus' word. And he wrote this letter that we now call the book of Ephesians to an international, interracial, multi-ethnic church that lived in Ephesus and in the, probably the areas around Ephesus. And he was writing to them about the struggles that they had, trying to figure out how they were all going to be one people and overcome the cultural divides and hostilities that were among them. And this is what he said about being the temple of God together. This is Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, he said, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, like to God or to one another, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's like the Christian community of all these different races and people, all these different individuals are a building together. You're built on the foundation of the apostles, the witnesses to Jesus, and all of God's prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the one who sets the building and makes sure it stays straight. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You can't overestimate what a huge deal it was for a first century Jew to talk about a temple when there was a temple of God's presence in Jerusalem at that time and pagan temples all over the world. But Paul says, you all are the temple of God. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That the presence of God, that God lives in and among you by his spirit. It's passages like these that, that make me a little bit nervous sometimes. When Christians, with good intentions out of respect and reverence, refer to a room like this or a building like the, that we're in as, as if this were God's house, right? Now, we, we say that out of respect because it's a place where we come together and we pray together and we read God's word together and hopefully we are shaped by the Spirit of God together and we gather for worship. 
But Jesus himself said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And God's spirit is in us and among us wherever we gather together on the cornerstone that is Jesus. When you gather together in your growth groups later this week and you pray together and read God's word, God's, read God's word together. When, when you are at work or with your friends and you are an ambassador of heaven and you are a follower of Jesus in that place, you are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. It doesn't depend on going to one holy place. It doesn't depend on like saying the right phrase and trying to figure out how you conjure up the experience of God. It's not about trying to get yourself all worked up so you feel super spiritual. This teaching says to us, you are the temple of God so long as you are built on the foundation of Jesus' teaching with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We are created to live in the presence of God. And just as we read last week in the preaching of the good news about Jesus, God poured out his spirit on young and old and men and women and together in Jesus' name built this community that is the temple of God everywhere that God sends us. We're made to live in the presence of God. How? How does that work? And how do we know what the Spirit's doing in us? How do we know if this is something that God's guiding us to or not? What kind of Spirit is that that's being poured out to us? If the first problem that I want to talk to you about today is dry spirituality or the absence of God, the second thing I want to talk to you about is what I might call fuzzy spirituality or, or the opportunity to make God look like anything we want God to look like. Somebody told me once, I have an idea about what God might like and I, what God might be like, and I certainly can read the stories of Jesus' life, but the Holy Spirit feels to me like, and this was the phrase I heard, a gray oblong blur, just so fuzzy and undefined, right? There's, a, there's an image in the Old Testament. God says, I'm, it's like I'm the potter and you're the clay, and I can make you into something. But I sometimes worry when we talk about the Holy Spirit that have we reversed it? Are we the potter and God is the clay? And we talk about spirituality and being spiritual, and we can make God in anything we want God to be. Somebody choked once. I said, in the beginning, God created human beings in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. We've been recreating God in our image. And it's supposed to be a joke, but honestly, it's frightening. It's kind of terrifying. If we would start to make God be anything we want God to be, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a student of history. I don't know about all of you. And one of the periods of history I think is really interesting to study is the, the period in Germany that led right up to, to the Nazi era and try to understand what was going on in people's hearts and minds then. And I have a family connection to that period. And one of the things I've learned about the Christian churches in Germany in that period, especially those, and there were so many that were persuaded to get behind and even support what the Nazis and, the, and Hitler were doing in Germany in the 30s and 40s, even maybe a little bit in the late 20s before that. One of the arguments they used to convince themselves of this was that the Holy Spirit was doing a new thing, that God was giving them fresh revelation, and, and God had put his man in power and was doing a new thing among their nation to create new life in their community. And they became guilty of all kinds of horrible things in supporting that. What was supposed to guide them so they would know that this was not a fresh revelation of God's Spirit? Or, or to bring it a little closer to home, maybe down at our own level a little bit. Man, over the course of my Christian life, years and years, I've had friends over the years, sometimes long ago, both male and female, who, who have said to me, I think I feel spiritually led to leave my husband or leave my wife and my kids because I, I feel so alive and so free to be in love with somebody else now, no matter what it means for my family or their family. And if that's part of your story, there's, there's nothing in our past that can ever separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. But we want to know, is that the kind of thing that the Spirit leads us to or not? This is one of those places where we can really learn 
from those who have gone before us. Right? And learning from tradition is kind of a two-edged sword. I, I had a professor years ago, <laughs> back when I was in seminary, and he grew up in a very, very conservative Lutheran tradition, the de- denomination. And he said, if you want to understand the people I grew up with, kind of the world I grew up in, you just have to convince yourself that nobody has had any good ideas since the 16th century. Okay? As long as you figure out no good ideas have been had since then, you can understand the people I grew up with. <laughs> On the other hand, I think sometimes the world I live in, sometimes the world we live in, acts like no good ideas were had like before the invention of the iPhone. That was the beginning of it all right there. Somewhere in the middle lies the truth. I think this is one of those, one of those cases where we can learn a lot from Christian leaders who have gone before us. And on, on this day in particular, I want to uh, draw a lesson from those leaders of the Christian Reformation 500 years ago. More than any of their individual teachings, more than any individual topic, they had this instinct at the center of it all that I think is really helpful. They had this instinct to start their understanding of God. They had this instinct to start their discussions of God. They're thinking about God. They're thinking about worship. They're thinking about life. They had this instinct to ask all those questions with Jesus at the center. The technical theological word for this is Christocentrism, to put Christ at the center. But Luther, Martin Luther, the leader of this whole movement, was kind of a popularizer. He's a popular teacher. He liked to put things in the language of the people. And so he had a question, a guiding question that he urged. And this was the question that I think he's left as a legacy for. That's this question. What drives Christ? What drives Christ? What way of talking about God? What way of planning worship? What way of practicing the Christian life together draws maximum attention to Jesus Christ and his grace and the power and salvation of God in him? and draws us to him. What drives Christ? That instinct is the same one. It's the same instinct that's at work here in our church community. No coincidence on this. That draws us to ask, what's the heart of the Father like? That draws us to start with the picture of the heart of God that we have learned in the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we believe, because we've known the heart of God for us in Jesus, that the heart of God is like Jesus. The heart of God runs down the road After all his lost children, no matter how they're lost, far country lost, lost in the backyard, that the heart of God is like Jesus. Sometimes we say around here, we believe that Jesus puts a face on God. And so we don't start our picture of God with some idea we cooked up out of our own head and then make that God-like. We don't start with imaginations of God's wrath or God's rules or God's vengeance or God's absence or God's love and kindness that we, in the way that we imagined. Instead, we believe that Jesus puts a face on God. And if that's true, that's true also of the Spirit of God. And and so you know I'm not making this up or it doesn't just come from some tradition. I want to show you one example. There are many, but in the interest of time, one example of what Jesus himself said about this. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26. It's page 1580 of your Quest Bibles. This is what Jesus said. When the Advocate comes, and the Advocate was one, it's a translation of one of Jesus' names for the Holy Spirit. When the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from my Father, he will testify about me. He will testify about me. In another verse, Jesus says that when the spirit comes, he will remind you of the things that I have taught you. If I could summarize the content of this lesson, of this message today, in just one short sentence or phrase, I would say it this way. The Holy Spirit is the presence of the Jesus-faced God among us. The Holy Spirit is the presence of the Jesus-faced God among us, which is so important and so helpful. So important and so helpful for us to know that, that we don't live in the absence of God. 
in the lives that we are called to live and the efforts that we put forward to try to live a Christian life in this world, that we're not cooking that up by our own strength, that we're not trying to overcome hate with love because we've got it inside us, that we're not trying to overcome sin with forgiveness because we are such forgiving people, that we're not trying to overcome division with reconciliation because we can pull that off. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the presence of Jesus who leads us to live the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit who conforms us to the image of Christ. That we're not alone in that, and equally importantly, we're not alone in our sufferings. We're not alone in our times of trial. I mean, even in between services today, I talked to a number of people who heard that in the last service who are going through times of trial right now and need to be reminded that it's at the darkest times that God came to be with us, that Jesus came to be with us even in betrayal and rejection and death, that he took the risk of humanity, lowered himself to the form of a human, even to the point of death on a cross, that he would be with us, that the presence of God would be with us no matter where we go. And that in that presence, we would never have to wonder, what sort of God is this? Is, is, is the Spirit of God out there freelancing somewhere, making stuff up that we couldn't understand? Is, is the Spirit of God moonlighting while God the Father and God the Son, well, we know what they are. The Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Christ among us. And this is the Spirit that conforms us to the image of Christ, that leads us in the grace of Jesus, that leads us in lives full of love like Jesus, that leads us in the power of Jesus. And this, I think, is good news for us. This is the spirituality that we need I think it's a spirituality that the whole world needs, a spirituality that is alive in the presence of God and empowered by the goodness of Jesus. I think this is what the whole world needs. And as we close today, I want to finish with just a couple of minutes of focusing on that last phrase, that this is what the whole world needs. So I think every single person in the world needs God. I think we all need God. And, and more specifically, I believe that every single person in the whole world needs the God who has come to be with us in Jesus, needs to know the joy of the presence of the Jesus-faced God among us. Now, did you know that in less than two months, it will be Christmas? I, I'm sorry, by the way, if that's a little frightening, but it'll be Christmas in less than two months. I know it would have been harder to believe if it hadn't snowed this last week, but it looks a little bit more realistic right now. And there's no better time of year to celebrate the presence of the God who came to be with us than at Christmas when we remember the time that God came to be with us, right? Now, I want to give you a number to think about. I mean, you've never think about it. Here's the number, 1585. 1585. Does anybody, don't, don't, you know, just think to yourself, do you know what that number means? And it has nothing to do with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? 1,585, that was our attendance last year in our Christmas worship services on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And honestly, for about the last 10 years, it's been about the same number, give or take a little bit of fluctuation every year. And on the one hand, I want to tell you that's fantastic, that together with a thousand and a half people, we gathered together. Many of those are among you right now joining us for this message. That, that we celebrated the good news of the God who came to be with us in Jesus with a thousand and a half people, that's fantastic. On the other hand, it's not enough. I'm not satisfied with that. That's not enough. There is nothing in the world that convinces me that the need for the joy and the knowledge of the presence of the Jesus-faced God among us has been met. There's nothing that convinces me that that need is going down. If anything, I think it's going up. And yet it seems like at some level we've kind of bumped up against the limit where we are sharing the joy of the presence of the Jesus-faced God who is with us, who came to you among us, and is with us still. 
All right, and because the truth is, if you wanna keep doing what you've always done, you'll probably keep getting what you've always got. We're gonna try something a little bit different this year, okay? We're gonna take a little bit of a risk. I'm gonna tell you up front, no, it's a risk. I might fall on my face leading us in this direction, okay? And if I do, I feel okay about that because you all are gracious and forgiving people and we'll still be friends after. And because also, I'd be willing to fall on my face to share that good news with other people. So here's what we're gonna do, all right? On Sunday, December 17th, on the weekend before Christmas. Did you know Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, December 24th? Make your worship plans now, okay? On the Sunday before that, on Sunday, December 17th, we are going to change our Sunday morning activities and our Sunday morning schedule, just for one Sunday to try this. We're going to all gather together here on that day in this room, in this sanctuary at 10 a.m., okay? So we're not gonna have services at nine o'clock. Don't come at nine o'clock on that day. We're not gonna have services at 10.30. We're all gonna gather together here in this sanctuary. There's a lot of seating in this room and here in the chapel. There'll be seating for people who need seating, and some of us will probably be standing in the aisles and filling the chapel, okay? And at 10 o'clock, we're all gonna be together here for 20 minutes, and after those 20 minutes, we are going to extend our worship out into the world by embodying the love of Jesus in service to our community. And we're gonna have all kinds of opportunities at Christmas when we remember how the love of God became flesh and dwelled among us to go incarnate and embody the love of God out in our community. And we're gonna have all kinds of projects that are set up, some of them already, with the service partners that we already serve with all throughout the year. But we're gonna concentrate on that morning. Most of it's gonna happen off campus, out of this building, out in the community, bearing the love of Jesus to the world in practical ways. We're also gonna have a number of projects that we can participate in here in this building. For anyone who has transportation or mobility issues, We want to make this something that all of us can do together, no matter what our life situation, circumstances, from the youngest to the oldest, doesn't matter. We all want to do this together. Here's what I think. I think you know people who need to know the joy of the good news of the presence of the Jesus-faced God among us. They need to know that. And and for a lot of them, they would join you in your church if you invite. They'd come any Sunday. You could invite them at Christmas. On a Sunday, they would come. And every Sunday is a great time for that. But I think you also know people for whom that would be a real big ask. I know people in my life who think the church building would fall down on them if they came into it. Now, maybe that's hard for some people to believe, but some of you actually have had that experience and come in and the building didn't fall, praise God, right? But those same people, it's a big ask to invite them into a worship service. It's an uncomfortable place for them. But they would join you if you invited them to serve your community that you share with them, to serve with you and with your church family. At that time of year in December when everybody in America is feeling more charitable and more giving than any other time of year, they would, they would take you up on that invitation. And I want to ask you to think about who that is that you could invite and that they could have a little first taste, take a first step of experiencing your loving Christian community in action. And this isn't a sales gimmick. It's not some kind of bait and switch or anything like that, right? We're going to be serving alongside the same mission partners, the same service opportunities, some additional ones, but we're just concentrating it all under one time and making it an invitational opportunity. And I'll tell you what, I know this is a big risk. I've had people in other churches who've thought about or tried this before tell me, Steve, the regulars in your church aren't going to come to that anymore because you changed things. But I said, not this church. Everybody's going to come to that. And they said, we tried it once and the offering went way down, right? So, so I'm warning you about that one right now, okay? So there's a, there's a risk that's involved in this opportunity. There's a sacrifice, actually, on our part because we do things every week because we like to do it that way. That's what we're used to, right? And so it's a little bit of a sacrifice on our part. But it's a sacrifice I think is worth it in an attempt to share the good news of the Jesus-faced God who came to be among us and is with us still.
And so I want to ask for your prayers about this. I want to ask for your prayers of blessing on, on our church and on God's witness in the whole world outside of our church too. And I want to ask you to begin praying about and for the people that you would invite to join you on that day. And I pray that it would indeed be joy, joy to us and joy to the world. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the goodness of your presence. You haven't left us out here on our own. You haven't left us to our own devices. You came to be with us, and you're with us still. You made life to be lived in your presence, and when we wandered from you, you came to be present to us. And God, I, I pray that you would just open up our eyes and our ears and sensitize our antenna to be aware of your presence among us, that we would know what you're doing in us, that you would strengthen us in our lives of service to others, that you would be present to us and comfort us in our times of suffering, that you would lead us in the way of Jesus. And God, I pray for our celebrations of Christmas and for this, this serve day that we're all gonna share in together. And I pray that you would, that you would lift up your name, that you would lift up your goodness, that your hope and your grace, your power, your love, and your joy would reach your world. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.